We start every service in Baghdad with the words Allahumma, which is very Anglican. It says the Lord is here and everybody cries back to his spirit is with us. So the words of the Eucharist. And we thank God that the Lord is here and his spirit is with us. And I bring your greetings from our church of St. George's Baghdad. I've wanted to come and see this church for years. And I'm so happy to be here today because it's better than I even imagined it would be. So thank you very much. Iraq is in the Bible more than any other country apart from Israel. But it's not called Iraq. It's called Assyria, the land, not Syria, Assyria, the land between the rivers, or Mesopotamia. And right from the beginning of the Bible to the end, you find Iraq there. I haven't got time to go through all the Bible passages today. If you were really wacky church, which has an hour-long sermons, I'd do it. But because you're like us, I won't, all right? I might be an Anglican, but I still believe that God made the world. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read about creation. And the Garden of Eden was between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. That means it was in Iraq. Because the Tigris and the Euphrates are the two main rivers in Iraq. And you still can go to the place which is called the Garden of Eden in the south of Iraq. So Iraq is there in creation. And then as you go on in Genesis and come to chapter 12, you see that God chooses a man from the south of Iraq called Abraham or Ibrahim or Abraham. But he came from Ur, the Chaldeans, which is definitely in Iraq. And Ur is still there today. And so the whole of salvation history comes through this man, Abraham. And Abraham was sent from Iraq to Canaan, to Israel. So Abraham was in Iraq, Israel, and then they ran out of food in, Iraq, in Israel, so he went to Egypt. I want to just tell you a little about that at the end. So Abraham went because God sent him to Israel from Iraq. And then the next major time that we see Iraq in the Bible is during the second exile of the Israelis, of the Hebrew people. They were taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, to 
part of the Babylonian exile. And the people who were taken were very key to the whole of our gospel story, a whole of our story in the Bible. Daniel, Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of them came from Israel to Babylon. I remember one day when I said to my children at church in Baghdad, I said, it's Christmas next week, so I want to tell you about where Jesus was born, because I used to live there. And Jesus first went to Bethlehem. A little boy puts his hands up and said, Abuna, Abuna, you're wrong. I said, am I? He said, Jesus didn't go first to Bethlehem, he came here. I said, what do you mean? He said, remember when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were in the fiery flames? Well, Jesus was with them. (laughs) I thought, yes, I'm wrong. (laughs) And then I continued and he said, I was one more, Abuna. Do you remember when... Daniel saw the Son of Man over the Tigris River there. That was Jesus. I thought, with ten-year-olds telling you that you've got things wrong, what hope is there? (laughs) So next year, when you sing, Hot the Herald Angels Sing, remember, it was a Baghdad, all right? (laughs) And also coming then was not just Daniel, who never left Iraq, even Cyrus when he became king. Daniel stayed there. Why did he stay there? Because God had sent him there. And the most important thing is to be where God has called you to be. And that, for Daniel, was in Babylon. So Daniel remained there, and then Ezekiel was there, and Ezekiel saw incredible things. We see that he saw these angelic figures. He fell face down by the Kibar River. Do you know where that is? It's in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is in Iraq. Israel only took Tel Aviv name because that was where the exiled Jews were taken to. If you don't believe me, read Ezekiel. I was standing outside my balcony one day in my hotel in two or three just after the war. I'd been in Iraq for a few years working on and off. And I saw this huge cloud over the Tigris River. I thought it looked like the cloud of the glory. And I said to God, what is this? I said, how can your glory be here? It's such an evil place. He said to me, very clearly, he said, read the book of Ezekiel. No, nobody had told me that Ezekiel had 48 chapters. So I read all 48 chapters, and it was indeed very like Ezekiel experience. Now, they didn't teach me this when I was at Vicar Factory in Cambridge. (laughs) 
I had just been to the Ayatollah, the Grand Ayatollah Baghdad that day. The Ayatollah had said to me, Andrew, he said, I need some meat. I said, how much meat? Oh, he said, just all of Iraq. I said, I've got about $12 in my pocket. How can I buy meat for everybody with $12? So at the end of... I, he, he said to me, well, pray about it. When an Ayatollah tells you to pray, you do. <laughs> so I finished my 48 chapters of Ezekiel, and then I was just about to retire for the night, and I remembered, oh, I've got to say a prayer. Please, God, send me some meat. Amen. <laughs> Next morning, down at breakfast, a big American man comes up to me and says, hey, Father, want some meat? He was American. I said, what do you mean, do I want some meat? He said, well, you're helping the people of Iraq, aren't you? Do you want some meat? I said, yes. I said, how much meat is there? Oh, 147 tons. I think it may have been 147,000. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But it was a whole shipload of meat. And fortunately, it was just enough for the whole of Iraq. <laughs> I didn't expect God to answer my prayer when the Ayatollah told me he needed meat for the whole of Iraq. I went back to the Ayatollah and I said, Ayatollah, I have the meat. He said, did you pray about it? I said, yes. <laughs> he said to me, see, I told you. I said, yes. So that was an answer to prayer. We must expect big. But that was really the beginning of God doing spectacular things. I had no idea that God would work like he has been working. I remember when I was a vicar in London and we used to have healing meetings and sometimes somebody would get healed. In Iraq, sometimes somebody doesn't get healed. It's very unusual. Most of the time, everybody gets healed. So we see angels all the time. Seriously, you see angels. Now, I was getting some photographs for one of my books I was just about to publish, or the publisher was about to publish, and I needed some pictures. So I said to my adopted son, Dawood, will you take some pictures for the new book? He started, he said, I can't take any pictures. There's too many angels. They're everywhere. They keep getting in the way. I said, well, thou just let me talk to the angels. So I move over. And I say, can we just have one minute to take some pictures? Do you think they listen to me? No. So, if you want to see pictures of what they look like, you've got to buy this book. <laughs> Because we see the angels all the time around us 
And when we see these angels, we see like globes of glory. And they've come out in the book. We don't see them like globes. We see angels, but on the camera, they come out of globes. So they're in that book. It's a good book. My mother said it's the best one I've written. Can you give that book to him? Because he can sing the best I've ever heard. Anybody sing in church. So he can have it. Thank you. So we have this incredible presence of God. And we worship God and God is with us. There's a real sense that he is with us. But one day, it all seemed to go wrong. The church next door to us, the Syrian Catholic Church, they were having their service on a Sunday afternoon like us. And as they were having their church, they, people broke in and started killing people. They killed 59 of the congregation in church. Can you imagine if somebody came in here and killed 59 of you this morning? And there was one little boy called Adam, and he was walking around behind the terrace saying, don't kill anymore, stop it, stop it, you've killed enough. And in the end, they turned around and shot dead Adam. And then his parents. And immediately after, Al-Qaeda, who took, responsibility for it started killing all the Christians in Iraq. My chief of security had both legs blown off. In a way, the ones who lived had it worse than those who died. And I was sitting down on my bed in tears one day, and my little adopted boy, Dawood, the one who's complaining about the angels, came in. I said, Daddy, why are you crying? I said, because everybody's being killed. Oh, he said, don't worry about it. They all speak Aramaic. So when they get to heaven, they'll be able to speak to Jesus. So I really did feel that. And I thought, what on earth do I preach on today? the following week after all of our people had been killed. And this verse from Romans 8 came to me. I consider that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And that was the thing which gave me hope. So I went into church and I spoke about this topic, topic, that the present suffering was nothing compared to the glory that was to come. You see, when you've lost everything like we had, as I said earlier, you realize Jesus is all we have left. And we realize that Yes, we might be killed, kidnapped, tortured, 
I've had, in the last five years, over 270 of my own people killed. So it happens quite a lot. And so the reality is that we suffer. But despite that, we are so aware of the presence of God with us. I remember when I took over St. George's Church in 2003, we reopened it after the war. It had been closed by a before, because it was English. Saddam was not against the Christians, but he was against the English so we reopened the church, and I remember in our first service, we had mainly um, generals and ambassadors coming to church. They tend to do that if they're American. Brits don't come to church much. Do you have that problem here? <laughs> looks quite full. But um, they started coming every week. And I remember the first passage that I preached on. It was from the book of Haggai. It was written on the walls of Coventry Cathedral, where I was then based. And it said, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, and in this place shall I give peace. And I presumed that that peace would come by political change. And there with all our ambassadors and our generals, I preached on this, and I really hoped that change was coming. And then within about five weeks, the bombs started, the terrorism started, and the generals and ambassadors stopped coming to church. Too dangerous. So, the Iraqis started coming. First week, 100. Second week, 200. First, third week, 300. And I thought, oh, this is quite a good growth rate. <laughs> After a few weeks, we were 1,000. And this passage came to me then. The suffering of this present world is not worthy comparing to the glory that is to come. And the glory that was to come was the presence of God with us. And I looked around and I thought, what can we do to help our people? There were three major needs. They had no food. So I said we will start giving food to everybody every week. My assistant said to me, how? I said, I don't know, but God will enable it. Well, I was a normal Anglican canon at that stage. I didn't have the ability to even raise money, but God gave it to us. So we started giving people food. Everybody had an ID card and they came for food for their family. To this day, we give food to all the families every week. Not just a meal, but a whole 
bag full of food, like a Sainsbury's bag, with roast chickens in it and lentils and rice and sugar and tea. So that was very good. And then I was talking to people and I said, what else do you really need? They said, we've got no clinic, no hospital, no health care. Oh, I said, no problem, we'll do it. Fortunately, before I, before I was a clergyman, I put people to sleep. I was a gas man. So I can put people to sleep sermons or drugs. <laughs> and um, we opened up a clinic and we started with a dentist and a doctor's and a laboratory and a pharmacy and it grew and we had a hematology unit, we had a stem cell therapy unit. In our, in our church, we had the most advanced stem cell clinic in the world. And all of the stem cells are taken from the patients. Why it started was because I had MS, and a friend of mine who was a doctor one day came to me and said, oh, you're getting worse, Andrew, we need to make you better. I said, oh, yeah, everybody says that. How? Oh, he said, I've looked it up on Google. <laughs> you need stem cell treatment. I said, but I have ethical concerns about how it's done. Oh, he said, I can take it from your own stem cells. I said, have you done this before? He said, no. <laughs> I said, when do you want to do this? He said, tomorrow. So he did, and it worked. And now we have 3,700 patients who have been treated with MS, treated regularly. We, we have a whole unit set up to remove the blood, plasma, then stem cells, and it's injected into their spine and into their um, soft tissue. It's quite funny having that in a church, isn't it? But, like Daniel, wanting to be full of the abundant life of Christ, when God sends you somewhere, one, he enables you to like what you're doing. Two, he enables you to do what you have to do, even if it's interpreting dreams. I needed to be able to do my work. God provided the opportunity. In our clinic, we, we do some of the stem cell work in the north, in Kurdistan, because it's safe. And we even have patients coming over from England and America. They can't be treated there, come to Iraq. <laughs> and my chairman, Lord Hilton, said to me one day, when he was coming out of church, he said, that service was the greatest presence of the peace of God I've ever experienced. And then suddenly it dawned on me, the greater glory of this house is still to come. And in this place I will give peace. And in this place was the church. That's where we had the peace of God. There's war and turmoil all around us. There are people destroyed all around us. But we know for a fact 
that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to come. And the glory that is to come is with us now. And we have to look forward, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. All of us need hope which we cannot even see. And that hope is what God has given us. It's wonderful. It's the best church I've ever had. If you don't believe me, come. Have a look. Or you can get some of my books. I've got some DVDs here as well called Facing the Canon, me and J. John. Anybody like it? First here can have it. There we are. This book, The Vicar of Baghdad, is really good because it's got good pictures. I usually only look at the pictures in books, not the writing. Who would like that one? First. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, don't hit me. Right, and these books are written not just by me, but by the children in our church. They're called Suffer the Children, and my adopted children have written in this book as well. These are really, really good because it's not all by me. But it's how God's glory is present and how God sustains us, even though it's difficult. Do you know what? We never know each month, says my director is sitting there, we never know where the money is coming from. We need well over 100,000 every month to do everything. We never have enough money, but God always gives it just before we go back. I say to God sometimes, Lord, why do you always leave it so late? Can't you do it a bit earlier? No. Well, may the glory of God really be with you. There's two books left. Anybody want them? One, two, Bismillah, Bulibin, Walroik, Al Qudus, Alilah, Al Wahid, Amen. That's not speaking in tongues, it's Arabic. <laughs> Bye.